excellent ones in whom is all my delight the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood i will not pour out or take their names on my lips the lord is my chosen portion in my cup you hold my lot the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed i have a beautiful inheritance i bless the lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is my, uh, at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore.
that we have in you, Jesus, of the faithfulness that we have in you, Jesus. And the commonality is that when we are in Christ, we are richly blessed. So thank you for that reminder this morning. Uh, God, we pray this morning that you'd help us to be not just hearers of your word only, but doers as well. So God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel free to take a seat. Thanks, Malia, Emily, band. Well, welcome, Redemption Church. If you're new here, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. We're really glad you're here, whether you're here in person, as many of you are. And for those joining us online, thanks for being here as well. Uh, we are one church in 10 local congregations throughout Arizona. We're gospel-centered, outward-focused, and together we believe and affirm that all of life is all for Jesus. And so we have an announcement this morning from Emmy. So Emmy Payne is our kids director. Why don't you come on up, Emmy? Let's welcome her up too. Otherwise, it'll be weird. <laughs> Hi, Emmy. Hi, Tyler. Hi. Well, thanks for being here. So in thinking about what we were going to share this morning, uh, we realized it's been two months since you started. So I know how that's gone, but why don't you fill everyone else in on how that's been for you? Yeah, um, it's been a lot of fun. I've loved getting to know everybody in the congregation, uh, but especially with my emphasis in parents, kids, and my kids' ministry volunteers. Um, I've learned a lot throughout the past two months, and I've been very blessed to have an awesome staff around me that really lift me up. And one of the things I was talking about with Heather, our previous kids coordinator, was that since the COVID shutdown and all this, when we're relaunching kids ministry, it's really like we're relaunching a brand new 
kids ministry. We got to get back into recruiting and we got to figure this out. So would you say that that's been true in your experience here? Yeah, we've seen more and more kids come every single week, which has been super awesome. Last week, I think we had um, upwards of 50 uh, people, uh, children in our ministry on a Sunday, which is super awesome. But it's definitely been difficult because our volunteer recruitment hasn't looked the same. And so we have been missing some volunteers in that our numbers are growing. Uh, so we have some volunteers who are serving every week, which is doable for now, but will be tough on them in the long run. Yeah. So we're specifically asking for something this morning, right? Yeah, so I'm basically up here to ask for nine volunteers uh, to be able to serve twice a month in kids' ministry. Um, it's only one hour for, uh, you only serve in one service. So it's just one hour, two times a month, which equates to only two hours a month. <laughs> so low commitment. <laughs> It does help when you put it though. <laughs> what does that wink for? You know. And just... we've come close to this line before where we've, um, because it's, it's gotten close to this line where we're kind of forced with a, a couple of difficult choices. One, we don't want to close any rooms and turn families away. That's a huge fail. We don't want to do that. We also could, but we don't want to hire uh, Busy Bees or, or another company to just come and babysit the kids because that's kind of, the opposite of what we're trying to do on Sundays. Right? Yeah, that doesn't line up with our mission really at all. Um, our mission is to partner with parents to create disciples of Jesus. And so hiring people to just babysit the kids is not really what we're looking at. Um, it's something we could do, but it's not something we want to be able to do um, because it just doesn't look the same way hiring someone who isn't necessarily part of our church and part of our congregation. Yeah, and 1 Corinthians 12 point, uh, kind of paints the picture here where we see the church described as a body knit together. And so this shouldn't be primarily something that is the parents' thing to worry about. Like, well, it's your kid. Like, you should probably just sign up and serve. This is a chance for single people to step up and serve the families of our church. This is a, an opportunity for any older folks in the congregations whose kids are grown and are maybe retired. This is a chance to come in and, and serve the families, the parents, in this season of life where they do need some extra support and help, right? Absolutely. And so to wrap it all up, we're asking for nine volunteers to serve twice a month, an hour. Again, that's an hour each time. We're talking two hours a month, which is pretty doable. Okay. So uh, how, if, if we're interested or available, how do we sign up? Yeah, so I set up a cute little blackboard in the back. Uh, it has a bunch of different color little cards on it. Um, on the back of those cards, you just write your name and your email, and I'll get in contact with you as soon as possible um, to get you started on that process and what that looks like to get all started in Kidsmen. Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, will you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word? The reading from today, for today is from John 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham who have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Emmy. Morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. A uh, little truth in advertising, maybe, would be helpful. Um, that if you're going to volunteer for children's ministry, it might be an hour on the Sunday that you serve when Tyler Tyler or Trey is preaching, but it's more like an hour and 15 minutes when I'm preaching, okay? So just be aware of that. Maybe you could find out when the other guys are preaching, if that's important to you. So. Um, I'm Frank. If you're new, we're glad you're here. I'm, I'm also one of the pastors here. Probably uh, the majority of the time on Sunday, you'll see me here, but we have three other pastors. 
Let me mention, if you're missing where Trey is today, uh, Trey is away at a camp this weekend. He was invited by the camp to come up and speak to a large uh, youth group uh, over the weekend. I think he's um, teaching four different times this weekend. That's a great honor, and we encourage that sort of thing. So that's why Trey's not here this weekend, but um, you can be praying for him and his ministry up there this weekend. That's, that's a great thing that he's doing. A uh, bunch of other things. I have a lot of stuff to cover before we get to the sermon. Um, first of all, uh, Andrea Hamilton has been working very hard with our uh, our outward focus ministries, and one of the things that she's done with alongside ministries, which we've been partnering with for many years, but she uh, and alongside came up with this idea to be able to bless some of the incarcerated folks uh, during the resurrection season by uh, asking us to send them cards for Easter cards. And so what, uh, what we've done is we've got a variety of different kinds of Easter cards out in the lobby on a table there. You can go and take as many as you like. Get your children involved as well. That would be especially good. Uh, you can decorate the card any way you want, put a little message on the inside, um, and then bring them back here, and we will make sure they get addressed and, and uh, the proper postage affixed, and we will mail them. Uh, but we're going to have <clears throat> the rest of March to be able to do that until the 28th. There are going to be cards available every Sunday, including the 28th, but we'd like those cards back by uh, Sunday the 28th in order to be able to mail them in time uh, to the prisons. And, and uh, really, it would be a tremendous blessing for those guys. I write these guys and visit these guys, and believe me, this type of thing is a big deal to them. Maybe not a big deal to us necessarily, but a huge deal to them. They would be tremendously blessed uh, uh, by this ministry. So uh, help us out in that regard. Um, also, uh, speaking of uh, Resurrection Weekend, Holy Week, I want to talk about the schedule there a little bit. So our Good Friday services are at 6 and 7.30, and they will be in here. They'll be about an hour, maybe a little less than an hour uh, long. Uh, and then on um, Saturday, we're having a church picnic and an Easter egg hunt. Uh, that starts at 10 o'clock. I have no idea how long that'll go, but there is going to be food from Bruce Brown Catering there. Uh, an Easter egg hunt will be a great time, so uh, sign up for that. Be, be sure to come to that. Let us know if you're coming to that. And then uh, Easter Sunday, uh, a bunch of stuff going on there. First of all, we're going to have our services outside on the patio, uh, weather permitting, of course, but we're planning on having uh, the services outside on the patio um, so that we can keep it to just two services because we believe there will be more people. Uh, also, it'll be better for being outside in terms of uh, the air circulation, everything. Maybe it'll encourage some other people to come who, who haven't felt quite comfortable com coming back to church yet. Uh, we can get way more people out on the patio. Uh, you can bring blankets or whatever if you want. We'll have plenty of chairs out there, but you can bring blankets or whatever, and so you could even set up if you want in the grass. We promise we'll have the sprinkler systems turned off for that uh, during that time. Uh, we are also going to do the services at, at 9 and 1045. If you remember, pre-COVID, our morning services were 9 and 1045. We're going to use Easter Sunday to go back to uh, our old service times. The reason is because we uh, have talked about this before. We want to begin adding back, and we have been adding back uh, the liturgical parts of our services, which are very important to us. And so uh, we're going to go back to 9 and 1045 on Easter Sunday. And then the other thing about Easter Sunday is we are going to be doing baptisms on Easter Sunday. And we already have a number of people who have signed up for that. And we're going to do them during the services. So you can pick your service. It'll be a part of the service that will be doing the baptisms. Um, that's kind of the old school way we used to do it at Redemption Arcadia eight or nine years ago until we, uh, before we started doing them between the services. But we're going to do them during the services. And so if you uh, want to talk about baptism or would like to be baptism, please, bapti baptized, please contact me, and uh, we'll, get, we'll get that all going for you as well. Stephanie, did I cover everything? I just want to make sure. I got everything? Okay, good. Oh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, yeah. So, um, so we're not live streaming Easter, are we? No, we're not. We're not going to live stream Easter. We're going to continue to live stream our services, but we're not going to live stream Easter. And the reason, uh, Easter or Good Friday, 
We're not live streaming. And the reason we're doing that is we're going we're to handle both of those services like we did uh, Christmas Eve. We are going to, we have already started preparing uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday services that are pre-recorded, and you're going to be able to access those on Friday and on Sunday if you don't uh, feel comfortable coming to church. So those of you who are watching our YouTube uh, live stream right now, um, that's going to be your option for Good Friday and Easter Sunday is there's going to be a pre-recorded service put together for you uh, very much like the Christmas Eve service, uh, and you'll be able to watch that. Uh, if you want a live service that's outside, come on Easter Sunday and, and join us on the patio. Did I get all that right? Okay, so you guys were up all weekend. The music team was up all weekend uh, filming for that, right, up, up in northern Arizona. So, okay, good. All right. Um, one other thing, I just thought I'd mention this is just a little personal thing, and, and uh, since I'm, I'm not on Twitter anymore, it's like you're my Twitter audience, so... Um, uh, this last week, I, I really felt this desire and need to tweet out how much better my life has been since I deleted my Twitter account. <laughs> Such is the irony of social media. All right, so let's, uh, let's get into John chapter 8. You can turn in your Bibles or your apps to John chapter 8. We're going to be in, in those eight verses, and that's it uh, this morning. No jumping around. Occasionally I like to jump around, but no jumping around um, uh, this morning. Uh, one thing you can count on me saying virtually every week is we are working our way through the Gospel of John. So just every week we're in John. We're going to talk about that. We're doing it verse by verse. And then also, one of the things that I like to do is I want to reset the context for everybody in case somebody missed or if we've forgotten, kind of help set up what's going on in the passage because uh, much of these chapters that we're in now, like chapter 8, is just one continuous narrative and conversation, but we're taking it in little parts. So setting the context, Jesus is still in Jerusalem, although he knows that's trouble for him, uh, and it is trouble for him. Uh, because he continues to dispute, which he didn't necessarily start, but he continues to dispute with many who want to have him arrested and executed. There's this fever that's growing among some of the religious professionals that they would like to eliminate him permanently. And where we left off last week, uh, Jesus tells the people that when he is lifted up, in other words, when he's crucified, when he's lifted up on the cross, then they will know that he is God and Messiah. Uh, not necessarily that they will know in a salvific way, but they will know cognitively, oh, gee whiz, I guess we, we crucified the wrong guy. But there also are going to be people uh, right now in this moment and also later on who see him lifted up who are going to believe in a salvific way. They're going to know at that time. And as he says those things right there, we find that many believe right there. Many believe. Many respond with saving knowledge to his teaching. And we talked last week a lot about how um, speaking the truth is going to get us into trouble. It's going to get us uh, persecuted, marginalized, and oppressed. But speaking the truth is also going to bear a tremendous amount of fruit. Uh, there's going to be a cost, but there's going to be a return. Uh, the, here you go. The cost feels like it's to us, but the return is given to us by God because he is sovereign. And that's a beautiful thing about the way God works. We are called to be faithful in the process of telling others about Jesus, but he is the one who is faithful in arranging the results. And so that's why sometimes we're confused about the results because we think we've done a great job of presenting the gospel and the person kind of looks at their watch and says, I got a dental appointment to get to. Are you done? You know, But other times, uh, you kind of fumble your way through it, and the person says, I got to know this Jesus. This is God at work. And so uh, Jesus tells them the truth, which gets him into trouble, but many believe. But for those who do not believe, it, fear, it further infuriates them. There's this growing fever against him. And actually, uh, we're getting closer and closer to chapter 10, where a great deal more clarity about all of this comes for, if you want to put it this way, both sides. Chapter 10 is, is I believe, is a watershed moment in the Gospel of John. In the meantime, Jesus continues with this conversation. So we'll look at this passage in two parts. The first will be 31 through 33. Uh, that's what we'll take care of first. And let me read it again. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him. Now, these are the ones who believe. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to, every, to anyone. That's interesting. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus starts by saying, if you abide in my word. So what's he talking about there? Literally, you could translate that as if you hold to my teaching, if you receive my teaching, if you implement my teaching, here you go, if you accept my teaching as authoritative. That's what it means when Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, if you're abiding in my teaching. Now, there is some tension here. Uh, let me just say this, just for clarity's sake. If you're somebody who does not like tension, being a Christ follower is going to be hard. There is tension in following Christ. I, I'm always fascinated, and I understand why it happens, but I'm always fascinated by the number of people who come to Christ thinking that'll eliminate all the tension in their life. You need to read scripture. There's going to be tension in coming and following Christ. Here's one of those points of tension that's kind of an internal point of tension. A lot of people see this statement, if you hold to my teaching, that means I have to hold to his teaching absolutely perfectly at all times. Is that possible in this world with our fallen nature? Is that even possible to do? It really isn't. The question isn't, have you quit sinning altogether? Then you're holding to Jesus' teaching. That's not the question. The question is, you're still going to sin, but are, here you go. Is it an aspirational value that you would like to do exactly everything that Jesus tells us to do? Is it an aspirational value? And when you don't live up to that, are you willing to confess and repent and acknowledge it and, and allow that to teach you how to do better? There's where the tension is. I talk to people all the time. There, there's a friend of mine that I, I walk with every single week. And one of his, he is a believer. There's just no question in my mind he's a believer. But one of the questions he repeatedly asks is he says, man, I, I know scripture. I read scripture. I, I abide in his teaching. I feel like, but then I go off and, and I sin here. I do something here. I react badly in traffic. Like nobody's ever reacted badly in traffic. But whatever it is, and, and I just don't know. And I'm like, yes, the fact that you're wrestling with that is evidence that you know. The fact that you're worried about that is evidence that you know Jesus. But there's tension there. And, and that's just that natural human condition of, am I doing enough? Jesus has done everything. Are we going to follow him? even when it's hard and even when we don't do a good job of it. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, one of the reasons he's saying this, though, is that uh, it was well known then, but they were having a problem with it with Jesus, and it should be well known now, but it isn't, that to join a faith community or to follow a teacher, a rabbi, means that you should also accept the teaching. In their first century context, that was understood and accepted. They, they didn't like Jesus' teaching, the profe religious professionals, so they wanted to have him killed. But those who followed him really understood the idea that I, I've got to accept his teaching as well. That's just not so in our context, I found, unfortunately. It is fascinating to me how many people want Jesus the person without Jesus' teaching. Now understand, that's an interesting bifurcation because Jesus' personhood, his teaching is a major part of who he is as a person, and yet we want to bifurcate that. We want to split that apart. We like Jesus the person. In other words, my concoction of who Jesus is. He's loving, he's compassionate, he'll never judge me, and he'll never confront me where I am. He'll just let me stay where I am. We want to separate that Jesus from the Jesus who says, listen, I, I accept you where you am. I'm, I'm meeting you where you are, but you have a journey that you need to go on. This is about sanctification. Okay? 
So it's amazing the number of people who love Jesus, the person, their person that they have created Jesus in their mind to be, but are thoroughly confounded by the idea that his teaching is an essential tenet of the faith. And it's an essential tenet of who he is as a person. So at Redemption Arcadia, we work very hard at teaching the Bible. Um, pastors are asked to do a lot of things, and that's good. They should be. But ultimately, as a priority, our job is to teach the word and proclaim the gospel. That's, that's like bullet number one, and then the rest are just sub-bullets. Okay? Uh, Larry Wright. Anybody in this room know who Larry Wright is when I say his name? Good. There's still people. You should know him. Um, so our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, Larry was Tom's spiritual father. I consider Tom my spiritual father, so I'm kind of like Larry's grandson in the spirit. Okay. Uh, Larry was saved out of, an, it, it's a great story, I don't have time to tell it. He was saved out of an incredibly uh, debased life. And he was also, he was, he was kind of known as the prince of the city in the 60s in, in Phoenix. Uh, he was a very popular DJ. And he had a lot of other problems. As well. Not that a DJ would have problems, but boy, I don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now, do I? Anyway, he was saved out of a lot of stuff. And he began teaching the Bible. And that's really all he did. When people would ask Larry after he was saved, what do you do? He'd just say, I teach Bible. That's it. That was his job description, I teach Bible. That was what was on his business card. Bible teacher. That's what he does. It's interesting also that we just went through the elder process here. Um, one of the first things that comes up for elder qualification is, can he teach? Can he teach? If you're going to be an overseer, a shepherd, if you're going to be leading people in the faith, you, you should have been given some sort of a gift to be able to Teach God's word and proclaim the gospel. And there's more on this in verse 34. And then verse 32, really a pretty famous verse. You know, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. The question, though, of course, is set free from what? Even the people who believe uh, ask this question. Set free from what? Well, here you go. You're going to be set free from false gods. A false god or an idol is not necessarily a bad thing. We have this conversation a lot, but I feel like I need to remind us. Um, wealth is not necessarily a bad thing. Career is not necessarily a bad thing. Comfort is not necessarily a bad thing. Pleasure is not necessarily a bad thing. Can I get an amen? Um, all of these things, they're not necessarily bad, but when we elevate them to places of worship and we're giving our lives to them uh, over and above God, that makes it a false God, that makes it an idol, and that makes it a bad thing. So when we know the truth of Jesus, it sets us free from doing those things, of elevating good things to become ultimate things, which makes them bad things. We're set free from false teaching. If you know the truth, you're going to know falsehoods. You're going to be able to spot them. You don't have to study falsehoods. If you, if you study the truth and know the truth, you're going to spot a falsehood a mile away. It'll set you free from the wrong worldview. Any worldview that believes that uh, uh, what, what God has made crooked, we can straighten out with our own intelligence and systems and, and processes. Uh, you'll be set free from yourself and your foolishness. You'll be set free from the eternal consequences of sin, but you'll also be set free in many respects from the temporal power of sin. This is something I've really wrestled with, ironically, in the last year. You know, this is the one-year anniversary of the last Sunday we had before we shut down uh, for COVID. Uh, I've been walking with Jesus for 34 years. And a lot of people think, well, gee whiz, you must have it all figured out, and you must know what all your sins are. The beauty of walking with Jesus is just when you begin to think that you, you've made some progress in some areas, and you probably have, is that then, then the Holy Spirit comes along and says, okay, now there's this other little part of your heart. Let's open that baby up. It's like, oh, wow. And God has done a lot of that with me in the last year. And, and in doing so, God is also revealing to me about the, the importance of accessing the Spirit for the power to be able to overcome. I can't overcome that myself. I have to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It sets us free from the need for only emotion and feelings to rule our will and wisdom. Sets us free from religious pride and religious piety and religious bondage. And it sets us free from the need to find our affirmation and our approval in this world. And by the way, I'm sure you know, many of you know that this verse is often taken out of context. We need to understand that the truth that Jesus is speaking of here is the truth of the Bible, the truth of God, the truth of Jesus. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's the truth that we're called to submit ourselves to. It's God's truth. And then verse 33 the people, these believers here, here you go. There's tension here. These are believers, but now they're pushing back on Jesus. They dispute Jesus' claim that they are not free. You know, we, we have the same problem. Not the problem of pushing back on Jesus. We have doubts, and we need to ask Jesus questions, and we need to search the scriptures for answers. But we also have the same problem in that we don't understand quite what this means that we're not free. We believe that we are free. I mean, we live in the United States. We're free. I can do whatever I want. I can be whoever I want. Now, of course, many times the Jews had been in bondage to other peoples. Israel, I'm sorry, um, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. They were currently in bondage to Rome. So clearly what they're talking about here is individual enslavement or bondage. But again, they're kind of like us today. They believe the lie that we're completely autonomous, that no one rules me. I decide who I am or what I am or who I will be or what my identity is or what I will do or what I will not do or where I will go and who I will be with. I decide all of those things. One of the most difficult things for a person to do is admit that they really aren't free because we're convinced we're free. You know, slavery is awful. Whatever kind of slavery you want to talk about, it's awful. But I would argue the worst kind of slavery is when you don't even know you're enslaved. And that is usually an enslavement to yourself and your limited self-centered understanding of reality. And that's what Jesus is pushing on here. You have no idea how enslaved you are. And then these last verses, 34 through 38, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. In this, he started with, if my word abides in you. But now he says, my word finds no place in you. He's Switch now, and he's starting to talk to these religious professionals here. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and and you, you do what you have heard from your father. So believing does not necessarily mean that you understand everything or that you get everything right away. That's as clear as mud. I understand that. I came to Christ when I was twenty-seven. I had. No idea that abortion was anti-biblical. No idea. And, and I didn't know that until I was maybe 30 or 31 when I had begun to study the parts of the Bible that spoke to things like that. But the idea that just because I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer, suddenly I had all this knowledge about Jesus' teaching, I think is an unrealistic expectation. There is this journey, this progress of sanctification. So what some of these guys are doing here is that they're clinging to their teachings and traditions, which is not unexpected. We all do that to some extent. When someone comes to Christ, one of the most disorienting things for a new believer is how much of your worldview is not shared by Jesus. So what happens all of us, the research on this is clear. People have tried to falsify this for years. You can't falsify it. Uh, all of us as human beings, we all practice something called false consensus effect. False consensus effect is the fact that every one of us overestimate the extent to which other people agree with our beliefs, our values, our opinions, our attitudes, our worldviews, our likes, our dislikes, our preferences, and our inclinations. 
we're kind of surprised when people don't share all of those things with us. I like this movie. Well, I don't. Somebody says I don't. What, what is wrong with you that you don't like what I like? We do this with music and entertainment, books, politics, Jesus' teaching. It's a problem. We do this with Jesus. We practice false consensus effect with Jesus. We're sure that Jesus always agrees with what we think is best. We're sure of that. And are stunned when he doesn't. And of course, the challenge is that we're the ones that are called to change our beliefs, values, opinions, attitudes, worldviews, likes, dislikes, preferences, and inclinations, not Jesus. That's called discipleship. That's called abiding in his word. But often we think Jesus is crazy. I mean, who would disagree with me on whatever issue it is that he disagrees with me on? But not only me, he's not only disagreeing with me. Here's the big one. Not only does Jesus disagree with me, but he's disagreeing with the culture which has affirmed what I think about this issue. How is that possible? How is that possible? Um, so, again, as a pastor, there's two frustrations when something like this happens. It's a constant, ongoing challenge, and there's tension between these two things when this happens. So the first one is this. A new believer finds out that Jesus doesn't share their perception of the world, and so they bail out without so much as a conversation, leaving the pastors and the shepherds at the church no chance of speaking into the disorientation or the confusion. This happens all the time. Jesus is wrong. I'm not having this conversation with you. I'm out of here. How is it possible that Jesus wouldn't see this my way? So Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. But we approach Jesus with, Jesus, you need to have the same mind in you that is in me. That's a problem. That's false consensus effect. Okay? Now, sometimes we are able to have the opportunity to have the conversation, and, and that's good, and we relish that opportunity. And understand, it's not that pastors are so gifted at persuasion that the new believer will be easily convinced. But rather, it's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come and work in the midst of that conversation, which is better than our persuasion tactics, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But here's the second challenge. Here's the other side of that coin. People who have been Christians for quite some time and do know the biblical paradigm on many of the issues that become difficult for new believers, they are sometimes desperately impatient with the development and transformation of the new believer. They just don't understand why the new believer doesn't get it right out of the gate. And so those longer-term believers can actually become a barrier to the new believer's journey because, frankly, too much is expected too soon and they approach the new believer in sort of a pharisaical manner. The, the problem, the challenge, is that we live in a thoroughly biblically illiterate society, culture, and world today. When I came to Christ at 27, I had never opened a Bible. Never. No idea. Okay. That's why regular scripture reading and Bible study is so important, especially for the new believer. But it's also why patience and forbearance is important for those who are further along in this journey. And then let me just reread 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Here's another way of saying that. You know, we all worship something. We all serve something. Um, James K.A. Smith I think it's him, he wrote a book, and, and in the book he said, you know, you are what you love. And, and what he's talking about is how our lives are built around habits, or what he would call liturgies. And so what you give your time and money to, in, out of habit or out of a liturgy, that's what you're serving. That's, that's what you're worshiping. It's not to say that we aren't in this world and we don't need to do those things, but, but are they more important than God? That's the question. We have a liturgy in our Sunday service. We had a liturgy in our Sunday services. We're trying to resurrect that now, as, as you've heard. 
And that liturgy essentially, the purpose of the liturgy and the overall service is in case I don't pro proclaim the gospel, at least the services proclaim the gospel. It's sort of a stopgap. And so what we do is we start with adoration of God, then we confess our sin, and then we embrace his teaching, and then we're sent out into the world as ambassadors for Christ. It's essentially what it should look like. The ultimate slavery, the ultimate bondage, is really not political or economic, but spiritual. It's the bondage that we have to ourselves. And that is the universal common human condition. In the 5th century, Augustine, one of the late church fathers, wrote very specifically about the nature of human beings is corrupted by sin. So essentially, we are not good, essentially. We need the intervention of Christ in our lives in order to make us right, righteous, we need that outside intervention because we are essentially, basically, because of sin, not good. In the 18th century, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the romantic philosopher, the existentialist philosopher, came along and specifically said the opposite of Augustine. He said, no, 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 no. We're basically good the reason we become bad is because of society and institutions. Institutions are the enemy. Society is the enemy. We are basically good, but we have been corrupted by society and institutions. Here's my quick question for Mr. Rousseau, if he were still alive. What makes up society and institutions? Corrupt, sinful human beings, y'all. He believes we're born with, at worst, a clean slate. He actually believes we're born with nothing but goodness, but then we get corrupt. That's just not true. It's just not true. But you hear that. You hear what he wrote in the 18th century. And millions of people who have never even read Rousseau, they're walking around going, people are basically good. People are basically good. His teaching has gotten into the water. That's a problem. That's a problem. And it also exposes the fact that you and I try all sorts of ways to make the reality of our fallen nature go away without Jesus. But only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. He's the only intervention, the only thing that can make straight what God has made crooked. And then verse 35, what does that mean? That seems sort of incongruent. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if you were under contract to a household as labor back then, you were not actually a part of the household. You were not a part of the family. And someday you would move on only to become encumbered again by another household as a, a servant. That's exactly how sin treats us. We tend to go from sin to sin. Sometimes it's just a new manifestation of the same old sin. But the sin is constantly encumbering us. It's enslaving us. But a son or a daughter is always a part of the household, and therefore they are free of encumbrances. He's talking about the household of God. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Come to Jesus. Be a part of the kingdom of God. You're now free of those encumbrances. You're not a slave anymore. And this illustration that Jesus uses highlights two really essential things. Number one, it highlights the incredible chasm that exists between the bondage of sin and the freedom from sin. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, and this is an amplified version of chapter 12, but here's what it says. Let us lay aside every weight or encumbrance and sin that clings so closely to us, weighing us down and denying us our freedom in Christ. Here's the second thing that this illustration highlights. Jesus is the only one with the absolute ultimate authority to set us free from sin. These hired hands that he's now looking at, the, the religious professionals, these slaves, these religious professionals don't have any of that authority. But Jesus is the son, so he has all authority. And then verse 37, what does that mean? He says, you know, you claim Abraham, and rightfully so. If he were speaking in contemporary language, he would say, yes, you are DNA descendants of Abraham. I, I'll give you that. I acknowledge that. But Abraham, in the Jewish tradition, represents righteousness. However, 
That righteousness of Abraham, you don't have that. You wouldn't know biblical truth if it bit you in the face. You are the ultimate in closed minds. I was sent here by the Father to serve you and to make you righteous. But I must abide in you, and my word also must abide in you for that to happen. I'm here to be the final perfect sacrifice for your sin, but also to teach you and reveal to you what it is that you are so clearly lacking. Oh, and by the way, it's the height of irony that the very one who is here to save you and teach you and sacrifice for you is the one that you desire so desperately to kill. That's ironic. And then there's verse 38. This verse seems innocuous here with this paragraph, but, but what this verse is doing and what Jesus is doing quite cleverly is he's setting up the next passage that we're going to look at next week. And I'll give you a little preview. Um, what Jesus means in verse 38 is that they are really children of the devil. And he's going to say that outright next week. You're children of Satan. You're not children of Abraham in terms of righteousness, and so they are actually doing the works of their father, the devil. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that without Jesus, we are children of wrath. It's essentially saying the same thing. So as I wrap up here, I think if we were to go back and say, what's the biggest problem in this passage here? I would argue that the problem is that there are, there are differing definitions of the words enslavement and freedom. There are differing definitions of enslavement and freedom. The religious professionals that Jesus speaks to believe that freedom is embedded in their power and status among human beings. Jesus is saying that freedom is embedded in their intimacy and knowledge of God and their humble submission to him. That's freedom. These guys that he's talking to think that enslavement is anything that restricts their will. Jesus says enslavement is allowing your will to control everything that you do and not submitting your will to God. It's the same problem we have, and that's why we keep after this issue every single Sunday here at Redemption Arcadia. We all need to wash ourselves in his word, in his love, in his grace, in his wisdom, or we're going to sell ourselves, so to speak, to another keeper. Is Jesus our keeper, or do we have another keeper? Again, this last year, with the virus and the lockdowns and the election and the civil clashes, I believe it's demonstrated rather clearly, I would even argue, that many who call themselves Christians are actually sold out to other keepers. So we might do well to engage in some honest Serious self-assessment. Is Jesus really your keeper? Who is your keeper? Is your keeper Mark Zuckerberg? Is it Jeff Bezos? Is it Bill Gates? Here you go. I'm going to start meddling now. Is it Sean Hannity? Is it Rachel Maddow? Is it Cuomo? Either one doesn't matter. Is it the elephant or the donkey? Is it some cause that you're sold out to? That you're so intent on fulfilling that you've left the gospel behind? Is that your keeper? This passage tells us about the importance of understanding true freedom and true enslavement, and we need to wrestle with this. Are we serious about Jesus? Are we children of God or are we children of worldliness? Jesus calls us to him because he loves us, because he is better, because he has something better for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that we would wrestle with who our keeper is and that we would be willing to rededicate those areas of our life where we have slipped or we've walked away from allowing you to speak into those areas of life. I pray that you would help us to see that. I, I pray that we would be people who would welcome the Holy Spirit with open arms, that we would not see the Holy Spirit as kind of a nuisance in our life and, and only somebody or something that we need when we're in trouble. 
I pray that we would be people of your word, that we would abide in, your, abide in your word, that we would abide in you, and that you would abide in us, and that your word would abide in us as well. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Again, um, in some ways, metaphorically speaking, we come to the Lord's table again. I hope you have your kits. If you don't, that's fine. All you got to do is run out to the lobby and grab one. Jesus calls us not only to him, but also to his table, to this sacrament, reminding us of how the bread is, is like his body broken for us and that the cup is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're told to proclaim this until he comes again. So let's do that now. Amen. 
Thank you so much for being together to worship the Lord this morning and to learn from his word, the truth that sets us free. I'm going to give us our benediction, uh, but want to invite you just before that. Uh, today is Orientation Sunday. We do that once a month, the first Sunday of the month. And so what that means is if you are new or newer here at Redemption Arcadia, that we'd love for you to join us at the Connect desk in the back uh, just after this service. We'll do a little meet and greet, a little tour around the campus, and then we'll end up on the patio out here where there'll be some staff members and pastors that will be willing to, uh, to, to meet you and to discuss with you. Uh, hear this benediction out of uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 16. It says, live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but in, as living as servants of the Lord. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. Amen.